0: You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Our guest today is Adam Bryant, Managing Director at the Exco Group and author of multiple books, including the most recent, The CEO Test, Master the Challenges that Make or Break All Leaders. Adam has a 30-year career in journalism, including 18 years at the New York Times. He created the weekly, corner office column in 2009 and has interviewed over 500 CEOs and other leaders for a decade. Since joining the Exco Group, he's started a popular interview series on LinkedIn with board directors, CEOs, CHROs, and prominent Black leaders, and he writes a monthly column on leadership for Strategy and Business Magazine. Adam is also the Senior Advisor to the Reuben Mark Initiative for Organizational Character and Leadership at Columbia University. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and Adam discuss how strategy drives culture and four key components for leaders to succeed, the power of defining the most critical metric and setting the tone, and how to have tough conversations and the importance of listening skills.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett, and today I've got Adam Bryant with us, who's a fellow Canadian, I just found out. Adam, welcome.
2: Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me. So,
1: Adam, managing director at the Exco Group, um, to, to just just I know we've done an intro before the show, but give us a little high level um, um, explanation about the group and, and and your your role there.
2: Sure. So, our firm does mentoring at the C suite level. We've got a bench of about forty mentors here in North America. They're all former CEOs, global business leaders, and we pair them up one on one with people who are new to the C suite or want to get there just because you know, you need somebody who's got some gray hairs and been in the chair and felt the weight on their back. Um, this is a new career chapter for me. I've been with the firm for four years. I was a journalist for 30 years before that, uh, 18 years at the New York Times. And that's kind of where I got my uh, on-ramp into the leadership space.
1: I love it. And so it sounds like this was a natural progression into your new book, The CEO Test.
2: Yeah. And even though consulting and journalism can feel very different, the through line is leadership. And in many ways, it starts uh, back in 2009. So my day job back then was managing teams of reporters. Um, But I asked myself a very simple what if question, which is what if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them a single question about their companies and instead just asked them about leadership lessons they've learned over the course of their life and how they learn them, the stories behind them, how they think about culture and teams and hiring. And that, you know, started a fun adventure. I interviewed 525 CEOs when I was at the Times, um, wrote a couple of books based on the themes that kind of emerged organically, started teaching leadership, and uh, at some point decided to turn my uh, passion side project into my day job. So uh, so now I'm doing this full time and writing more books. And I've got a a few interview series going on LinkedIn with pretty big following. So
1: So I love it. I love the why behind you wrote, why you wrote the book. I think that's very interesting, but I was curious, that must've been a tough conversation or tough conversations because there's, it's blurry, right? Between my leadership and my company was what I am, I'm visualizing you really trying to keep people on track here and, and say, okay, I got it, but let's go back to tell me what the leadership portion of that was or not. Was it easy?
2: Yeah, certainly early on, I mean, making people understand what my swim lane was and that I wasn't crossing lines in the pool, but just this idea that um, I'm not going to ask you about the strategy of your company or the industry dynamics or the competitors or the macro forces shaping your industry. And and part of that insight, I mean, I was a business reporter for many years at the Times and and elsewhere, um, and uh, that was kind of how the dime dropped. I mean, I was interviewing a lot of CEOs, asking them the kind of standard, almost like Wall Street analyst kind of questions, right? Like that's how the business press historically has covered leaders. You know, the parallel to me is that sports reporters always ask coaches, like, how are you going to win on Saturday right, or Sunday? They never say, tell me about how you your leadership approach and where that came from. And so, you know, I think similarly, the business press has covered CEOs mostly or almost entirely as strategists. And that's just, you know, being in that space for a long time led to that, you know, what I like to call the good, dumb question. What if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them about their companies? And I remember pretty clearly after I did my first interview um, for the corner office, I knew Greg Brenneman, the CEO. I'd interviewed him before, but I just remember walking out of his building and going, This is going to work. Um, and, uh, you know, because so many of these, these leaders, they've just got so much wisdom. Not all of them, right? I mean, there's a lot of bad CEOs out there and all that, but I worked pretty hard to make sure that. I interviewed people who were open, honest, candid, and thoughtful and reflective about leadership. So it's been fun.
1: So this was really about leadership. There probably, you know, I'm, I'm sure that it got into culture, but it must have been, did you check and bounce? Like if someone said our, you know, you sometimes talk to someone says, our culture's incredible, but you check and bounce, you show up to the store, you're like, really? Like that wasn't a great experience. Was there any of those moments?
2: Yeah, well, part of it uh, came from my approach. So I typically would interview the people for, you know, between an hour and 90 minutes, Um, I would record the conversation, get it transcribed, and then then the condensation process kicked in. So the typically the transcripts were 10,000 words, and I would cut them down to about 1000. And my my guidelines were: I always got rid of the stuff that was just kind of general, right? Like we've got an amazing culture here on, you know, um, and all the sort of platitudes and truisms and all that. And and to me, the, the kind of three currencies of leadership that I focus on are insights, Like, right? Give me a powerful insight about leadership, not just like a statement of the obvious, but something that makes me understand a, a dynamic. It makes me feel smarter about it. Um, The second one is like, what are the stories? You know, how did you, you know, when you first became a manager, you know, we all kind of are pretty bad as first. time. like, what were the stories behind that? And finally, like really practical tools, tips and frameworks that, you know, I can do that when I go to that meeting on Monday. So, when I was condensing the interviews, anything that didn't fall within those three buckets and was objectively like fact checkable, like if the CEO says like when I meet with my leadership team, we do this at the start of every meeting, like if he or she is going to say that and it's not true. like Somebody's probably going to let me know that. So that was kind of my guideline because, you know, you spend a lot of time in the sandbox too. There's a lot of who we out there in the leadership space, right? Just a lot of kind of fortune cookie stuff and statements of the obvious. So I really tried to focus on kind of those three things.
1: So I'm curious, um, did you define the word leadership? Because two things were coming to mind. One, in some cases it's subjective, right? It's not objective. And then I think back then, I don't know if you read, Marcus Buckingham's nine lies about work and actually Goodall, but they challenged they said leadership's not a thing they said you know people follow spikiness you know you could be a great badminton player that's a complete introvert isn't this charismatic leader and you'll have your following people will follow your lead I'm just curious about that did, did you guys say this is from our kind con- this is what we were looking for when it comes to leadership
2: yeah. And, and I I agree with you. I mean, leadership is one of those big amorphous words. And, and I find there's um, a lot of people like to put uh, an adjective in front of that word leadership, right? You know, whether it's positive leadership or servant leadership or whatever. And I always ask myself as opposed to what, right? Like positive leadership as opposed to negative leadership and servant leadership as opposed to what? Like, as Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody, right? Um, and so with this book in particular, we just said, we're going to get rid of all the adjectives in front of leadership and really focus. No, no in...
1: styles. So I just want to play that <laughs> note. There was because I, I do think of like servant leader is a style versus command and control leader is no BS, you know, you know, right. right but
2: uh, and on servant leadership, I mean, it's something I think about a lot. Like I, I'm not saying servant leadership is bad. It's great. But I just think that in this day and age, where, you know, we are in the era of stakeholder capitalism, I think command and control leadership is is dead, Um, and anybody still holding on to that is going to last much longer. So when I hear somebody say, like, I really believe in servant leadership, in my mind, I'm thinking, as opposed to what? Like, that's table stakes these days, because servant leadership is about, like, it's not about me, right? You know, and the sort of ego-driven CEO, we still see them, but that's not you know, that's not what people are going to put up with anymore. So that kind of, and I know it's kind of contrary. I wrote a column about it and I got a lot of mail saying, you know, you've kind of missed the point, but I'm happy. No, to have I agree. D- dinner party I'm going to get mail but- now.
1: I'm going to, I get incoming because I agree. Oh my God. I'm not going <laughs> to, Maddie, take our
2: address down. <laughs> um, and, and so because there is so much that has been written about the space, my my co-author, Kevin Scherer and I, we, we want to be clear up, on, on. we're going to focus on what leaders do. Those were the first six chapters. The last chapter is how you need to be as a leader. And to, to us, the whole idea is captured in many ways in the subtitle of the book, which is master the challenges that make or break all leaders. And behind that is a question, which is why do people succeed or fail in these roles? And yes, the book is called The CEO Test. It's not just for CEOs, but we ask this question rather than talking about what's unique about the CEO role. Why don't we look at what's similar, you know, what does the CEO do that somebody who's running a team of 10 people do middle manager? So what are the core challenges? Why do people succeed or fail in these roles? And then dot, 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 can we provide a kind of practical playbook and tools for addressing those? So that was, that was kind of our goal. Like we asked ourselves, how can we advance the conversation around leadership? And, and that was kind of the post-it note that we put at the top of this project.
1: And what was your aha moment? Um, You know, when you were going through this, Adam, what was like the wow? I've interviewed three people. This is an insight that I didn't know. This is very interesting. What was your biggest or, or you know, top three ah ahas?
2: Yeah. So one of them, just in in the course of writing the book, it you know, things became clear to me as opposed to, you know, I thought something was black and now it's white. And I've come to appreciate, especially in my new role, um, working inside big companies is the degree to which strategy drives culture and the the degree to which companies have problems getting clarity around what the strategy is. You know, I, I'm a journalist by training. I didn't go to business school. I always kind of assumed that people had a shared understanding of what the word strategy meant, and I've come to understand that it is like a Rorschach test. It's an ink blot right? Everybody reacts to it differently. Um, and just the patterns that I started seeing when we work with leadership teams, you ask them, what's your strategy? And some people go to a really high level, just a really just a general description of what the company does rather than what it's trying to achieve. And some people go super granular into the weeds about what they want to accomplish in the next quarter. Um, and so just to, I, I have been surprised the, the degree to which people struggle with that. And the other trap that I'm sure you've seen it, Ron, but just very often the strategy is, crystal clear in the leader's head, but it's not to everybody else, right? That sort of blind spot. So in the book, we provide a framework, a simple one-page exercise for how do you have a shared conversation about strategy? Um, and I heard it from Dinesh Paliwal, the former CEO of Harman. But in sort of building on that, I mean, I, I, have, I find myself increasingly looking at these sort of, you know, received wisdom about business and culture, these chestnuts that everybody repeats and, and nods their head. Um, And one of them is this idea that culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? We've all heard it. It's been attributed to Peter Drucker. Um, So Fun fact, he never said that. Right. It doesn't you know, there's no proof that he ever said that Um, it doesn't sound like him. Um, And the other thing is that I've come to appreciate is that it's its meaning gets misinterpreted from how it was originally discussed. So a lot of people, their shorthand for it is, well, culture is more important than strategy. Right. Like that's how people use that phrase. And in fact, Mark Fields, who is an executive at Ford, when he when he did say that phrase, what he meant was, you can have a great strategy, but if the culture isn't ready to execute it, it's just not going to happen. So but what I've come to appreciate is the degree to which strategy drives culture, Um, because, yes, you've got to figure out all the social architecture about purpose and mission and values and norms and behaviors. You need to do that. But unless you have a clear strategy, for winning where people say i understand first of all i like to be part of a team that wins and i can see how we are going to win and i can see how my work will contribute to that winning strategy if you get that right that actually has a huge impact on culture and morale because people come into work and go like i'm contributing rather than just busy work and i'm not really sure this how this helps so that's one point
1: so so i love that because i agree i, I was i was i was gonna i was just trying to shut my mouth there for a minute because I was getting excited. Uh, I agree. I think you have to be strategic about your culture. You lose it, you, it. It's a key strategic part of the business. If you don't see as a key strategy, it's, oh no, it's just these three values and it's not really strategy. It's baked and locked and loaded. You right. got it wrong. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So, so back to best practices, because I know you, you, you went quickly and said, look, we provide a one page guidance, but what's the key headline in that? Adam, what is the like, okay, if you look, it's a page of stuff, but if you can do this one, two thing, what, what was the best practice to, to get to a line strategy that you saw?
2: Sure. And, and as I said, you full, us, right? yeah, full credit to Dinesh Paliwal for coming up. But I interviewed him. And as soon as he said that this is the one pager that they use for their board, I fell out of my chair and said, That's so simple. It's so brilliant. So there's four components to it. The first one is a concrete summary statement of what you were trying to achieve. And this idea of like an actual goal, like an outcome that you are driving towards. So that's the first part. That leads to the second question, which is so how are you going to do that? Then you need to articulate, say, the two, three, or four levers you're going to pull to achieve that goal. The third part is to have that sort of reality check. Let's acknowledge and level set on the challenges, the headwinds that we face as a team, as, as, a, as a company in achieving those goals. So this is what we need to do, but let's be realistic about what we need to tackle. The hills we have to overcome because you need that shared narrative and understanding. And finally, the fourth part is you need a shared scoreboard for progress, for success. It doesn't always have to be quantitative. It could be qualitative, you know, shipping a new product by next March or something. But the importance of having that shared external scoreboard because an important insight is that if you don't give people, you know, like a sports team, if you don't have that external scoreboard, everybody's gonna make up their own scoreboard in their own head for their own contribution and human nature being what it is, they're always going to be crushing it on their own scoreboard that they created.
1: I don't want to go down a, a rabbit hole here, but I, I'm just on the scoreboard piece. So interesting, you know, I, I, I'm not sure, not sure if you read 4DX, right? That was the first book. So four disciplines of execution was the first book that I had read that really talked about the scoreboard. You know, that was the first time I heard about it and I got it. You know, we, we, We go to a sports game and you know the score and you know who's winning and who's losing. So it made sense to me. And their theory was leading leading versus lagging indicators, you know. And so if the quarterly project was that I need to, you know, my quarterly goal was to gain 20 pounds of muscle. And then the typical company would run and they say, Ron, how are you doing? Yeah, okay. You know, I'm working on it. It's coming. It's coming. That, that, that you get there and that's a lagging indicator, the 20, but they said you put in these leading indicators of, okay, I'm going to eat three chicken breasts a day, do 125 pushups and have some protein powder. And every second day, I'm going to go to the gym and lift heavy weights. If you do these leading indicators, you automatically get to the goal. Right. So I thought that was interesting, but then there was a problem. My problem as I was building a company was that was fine and dandy for a salesperson that needed to achieve some KPIs, some metrics. But if it was, hey, um, Adam, I need you to build the entire ro- build a new robust onboarding program, then then the leading indicators were challenging because you don't know what you don't know. Right. What are some of the best practices you've heard on the scorecard scorecard piece? Because wh- what we do today is we will say, okay, look, here's the the three month goal to build this robust onboarding. And you're at zero percent now. So each week you check in zero. You know that's our score bar, scorecard right. piece. But we we put in these week these weekly sprints. What's the one or two things you're going to do to move the metric forward? And so you just have these small little sprints. Right. Thoughts about that? Are we missing anything? And then what else are you seeing?
2: Yeah. So to me, when when we work with leaders and they've got all these things that they're working on, I mean, to me, the simple question is, like, be clear on what is an input and what is an output. Right. Like to your point about sort of exercise and building muscle. And and that, I think, then is helps clarify. You can take all that stuff that's on that one page, if it's 30 things and instantly create two columns. But I also think like this is why leader this is one of the many, many reasons why leadership is so darn hard. Right. Because it is this idea and I've, I've interviewed a lot of turnaround specialists, You know, people who've done you know, 20 turnarounds and they all say the same thing. It's like, you have to give yourself time to figure out the key things you're gonna measure um, because if you get them wrong, you're going to be incentivizing the wrong behavior. And so the metaphor for me is it's kind of like a rocket launch, right? Like if you're one degree off at the rocket launch, like over time, it's gonna start going off course. And so you have to be asking yourself, the things that you're measuring the you know the incentive comp the you know the the heroes that you are creating in in your culture are those driving the strategy and i do think an example is is helpful so it's one that's very close to home for me, but I worked at the New York times for 18 years. When I was there, the company had to go through this incredible transformation because it for, for decades, it operated as essentially two companies. There was the newsroom and there was the business side. There was a fat wall between them. The business side got the money, the newsroom spent the money, right? And they kind of didn't talk to each other. Um, but as, as everything was shifting to the internet, the, the business model based on full page ads was falling apart. Status quo was not an option. And over time, I mean, the punchline on this story is that it took them months and months of the leadership team across both sides. They had what they call a Friday meeting where they would meet from noon to six every single Friday and just say, we're going to keep sitting here until we figure this out. And they ultimately figured out something that looks obvious in hindsight, but didn't at the time, which they said, okay, the most important metric for us is going to be digital subscriber growth. And this whole idea, it unified the company because the newsroom wants more readers, right? And the business side wants a stable subscription base. You know, it's like the bond fund, right? The ads become the stock fund. And what's interesting now is that if you read any quarterly earnings report about the New York Times company, either the first or second paragraph is digital subscription growth, you know, grew by X percent. And to me, like, that's an example of how they figured out the right scoreboard that literally changed the behavior fundamentally ch- fundamentally changed a lot of the kind of cultural norms inside the organization and to me that's just like part of the art form
1: so so what i'm hearing though is they found out the right thing that was aligning them the right thing to keep score of that aligned right. both groups and so are you seeing Companies that are getting that wrong, like so. Hey, the the key metric here that the the um, the key goal is X, but these two groups, it doesn't align with them. And so, so it's it's kind of like, well, what's this for?
2: Yeah, Not a specific example, but I will say that we are talking to a lot of companies and and you probably are too, but just that this whole idea, like historically what you would measure in your employees performance was all around the what, right? Like, did you hit your numbers? And I think a lot of companies are now recognizing it's like, okay, that was incentivizing the wrong behavior because all the high performing jerks were running the place. Right. Um, And so now they're, they're not just like saying that how you do your job is important but that is now becoming a factor in your incentive comp we're seeing a lot more CEOs holding themselves accountable for hitting diversity targets and other things so just this actual peter druckerism of what gets measured gets managed i think that you know that sort of aperture is broadening quite a bit and we're seeing a lot of examples of like yes companies it's their responsibility to grow but just this idea of how we do that and then how we reward people for doing that, like that is a very of the moment conversation.
1: And yeah, so what were some of these other tough challenges that was like, wow, I wouldn't have really thought about, it. but there, there's these three things, these pitfalls that you just kept hearing about.
2: Yeah. So we, Kevin and I started out and we said, okay, well, what are the challenges that make or break all leaders? When you ask that question, it's pretty easy to fill up like three whiteboards. right? And so then we pro- started the process of, of winnowing that and just saying, okay, what are the, the core things? And I can run through them like in, 10 seconds. So the yeah, first please. one is is setting a simple plan for your strategy, right? What what we was just talking about. Um, the second chapter was about culture. Uh, the third was about teams and just making sure like, can you build a, a high performing team? The fourth one is driving transformation, because that's now a process. It's not an event anymore. This is an ongoing reality for companies. Can you listen is the next chapter. And I think, you know, I haven't found a business school that has a course on listening, but I just think it's more, it's sort of an underappreciated and underrated superpower of leadership. Um, the sixth one is navigating. Can you navigate a crisis? Um, and to me, there's like two broad brush kinds of crisis, including one of them that we've been we are still living through. And so those are the six about what leaders do. And then the final chapter we, we call, can you master the inner game of leadership? And that shifts to how you need to be as a leader and just sort of get things right in your own head so that you can be calm and confident and credible when you've got just like literally every minute, you got 30 things coming at you from different angles. And how do you hold on to the sort of psychic energy you need and the stamina you need to get through those jobs? So that's the arc.
1: Wow. And staying calm, right? I mean, you know, it, it, there were so many things going through that. That's action-packed, by the way. I am I'm, I'm really excited to read your book and really go through those things. I'm sure I've got lots to learn myself. I was um I was curious on one part, and I'm wondering if you covered this off. I was I was speaking from a group yesterday for a gentleman named Vern Harnish, who does these scaling up summits. And I, in my talk, I was talking about tough conversations. I'll tell you, I would still rate leaders low, and 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 I say this because even for myself, it took me a long time and, and it's still a work in progress. And I don't want to say to master tough conversations, but to even have them. What what did you guys cover off tough conversations and delivering that? And what did you find there? I was curious.
2: Yeah, and to me, the, the context is just getting in the right mindset where you can have them, right? Because some of this we touch on in this last chapter about the inner game. And, and the key insight there is that, any leader who's sort of looking for insights on how to be a better leader is quickly going to discover that all the advice out there is utterly and completely contradictory. Yeah. Right. right? Like, yeah, of course. Right. Right. (laughs) And, and, and especially in this day and age, right. Because how has leadership changed through the pandemic we're hearing about authenticity and humanity and empathy and compassion and, you know, that's all great. We should give three cheers for that. But on the other side of that are the contradictory notions, which is like you have to create a sense of urgency. You have to hold people accountable. There are those moments where you have to be demanding. And so just getting in the right mindset where, you know, this is a moment where I need to be compassionate, to have empathy. But this next meeting that I'm in, I've actually got to pound the table because we have to crash this project for a client. And I know that you put your kid to bed every night at this hour and this is your time, but we need you to do this now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having, just having those conversations and, you know, I was a manager for 14 years. I probably avoided my share of them, but the ones that I did, I just said like, why didn't I do that sooner? Right. And, uh, and you know, the shorthand that I used in in my head is there's that expression about running, which is like the first step is the hardest, like just getting out the door, um, just shoes
1: on. (laughs) And and I
2: find that with tough conversations because usually everybody, you know, the elephants in the room, right. And it's just, you just need to start by saying, we need to talk. And the other person usually knows, and then you can kind of clear the air and work through something. And so, um, you know, I, I know there's a lot of different frameworks for how to have them, but I think more importantly is just getting in the right mindset of being willing to have them.
1: Well, it's funny. And I find that's two-sided because I, I will say, and I've, I feel like I, through a business coach picked up a great framework that's scalable. I love it. It, it really checks and balances how I have these conversations. Uh, it's like a one, two, three punch. But, but even before, I'll tell you one thing I learned is to not just check myself, but to check the other side. And what I mean by that is, you know, you're talking about, you know, you put your kids to bed, this, that in some cases I've jumped in, I've gone, get, I'm ready. I've gone through my framework. I'm prepped. And I sit you down to talk to Adam and your mother died yesterday right. and you are not in the headspace. And I start going through and it's not going well. And right. so I'm doing these pre-checks to say, Hey, Adam, I'm looking to have a, a you know, a, a meaningful conversation and provide some feedback. So, you know, where we're heading. But is that going to be, does that work for you today? How you doing? Like, right. and that has helped me actually. And I didn't do that before. And I was like, what a waste of time. I really got this wrong. I need to check both sides. Thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I I think that's a great tactic. It just because you're 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 also in effect saying, like asking for permission. Like, are you, I want to give you some feedback, are you open to it? Because we all know from all the neuroscience studies, right? Like when a boss says, I want to give you some feedback, everybody's brain shuts down, right? Like they're in that sort of fight or flight mode and all that. Um, and so just anything that can be done to sort of disarm people. Um, I'm I also think of this uh, the CEO I interviewed, um, he was only 29 when I interviewed him and I told him at the end of the interview, like you're a 50 year old man trapped in a 29 year old, because he was just (laughs) so wise. Um, But at the culture is his company. I mean, he, he would tell all new hires. He said, you know what? I'm going to give you feedback. It's my job to give you feedback. And so when I give you feedback, I want you to not be surprised when you do something well, I'm going to tell you. And when you could have done something better, I'm going to tell you. And I think just sort of like just setting that tone, Because I'm often struck by how in so many other parts of our life, not only do we get feedback, but we seek it out, right? Like you go to college, you get professors give you your grade, you hire coaches, you play sports or dance or whatever. People are giving you feedback all the time, but you get into the context of work and it's like, wait a minute, you're giving me feedback, right? And people, you know, they get all defensive and their arms go, you know, start folding across their chest and they shut down. Um, and
1: yeah, cause they didn't, they weren't expecting it. It's like, well, I thought we were talking about the weather and now, right. what, what, you know, yeah, it's right. a trap.
2: You right. Know? So I just think setting the tone, it just, you, you have to make the barrier to entry to those conversations lower. And first of all, signal, I love your tactic. It's like, I want to have one of those conversations with you right now. Are you open to it? Set the tone that you're going to do it a lot. And the other great tip that I heard about, um, giving feedbacks, there's this metaphor is like, don't go over the net. And this is where people get into trouble, where you talk, of, you, you can never say anything that makes makes it seem like I know why you did something wrong or what you were thinking when you did or didn't do. So. That's when you get into trouble. If you mm-hmm. just stay on your side of the net and say, look, this is what I'm, I'm seeing. This is what I'm feeling. Tell me I'm wrong, but this is how I'm, you know, my take on things. Because the other person can't argue with you on what you're thinking and feeling, but they can argue with you. If you say like, you seem to be kind of like checked out, like they have every right to get their back up
1: hundred percent, you know, and, and, look, I, I agree. And my other point I was going to make, and cause I was listening to you talk through the the gentleman and, and I agree with his points, by the way, if someone joins our firm, I say, look, we're like a sports team. You know, you tell me when you, did you play sports? Yes, I did. Okay. Did your coach coach you at the end of the season? No. Halfway through the season, <laughs> at the quarter of the season, at the end of the game? No, right away. Good right. play, bad play, right? And and right. so we we present that as our culture. But the one thing I've learned, and this is back to that framework, uh, that has been helpful, you know, because there's the, the high level permission, I think makes sense, right? With, yep. I think leaders are starting to get that. But the other one is the intent, right? Because intention to me is is one of the most important tools or, or uh, positions of the feedback. And so for instance, you know, if you, if you were struggling in our company with sales and I'd say, look, you know, Adam, the intention is to get your sales done on time. So we can hit our targets. Like that is not to me, that's a fail intent versus look, the intention of this conversation is that I make you the best salesperson that you can be. I make you better than you could ever be that better than I ever was. Right. And I can lift you up within this company that I find the intent that the starting, the framing of the intention has helped me, to get to the feedback. So someone says, wow, you, you, this is for me, not for you, not for the company. Uh, Have you heard that and, and, and thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a great approach and making that explicit, I think is super smart. And I also think that a lot of people just sort of feel that at a, at a gut level, right? You know, I, you talk about sort of the lizard brain, right? you can always tell that your, your boss is on your side. Do they want you to get better, right? That comes through in their body language and how they talk about things. And just that sense of like, are you on the opposite side of the table? You on my side of the table, right? And right. That, that really comes through and also just making it explicit. It's like, I want you to be better. Like my job is to make you better. Um, and it, it to me, one of the meta questions hanging over all this is like, why are there so many bad bosses in the world? Right? <laughs> right? And we could talk for that for hours, but they're
1: not voted in. No one gets voted <laughs> in. Right. Yeah.
2: Um, but I, you know, the older I get, the more I love phrases that begin with, like, there's only two kinds of fill in the blank, right? And if there's an actual insight there, and and I do think at the end of the day, there's only two kinds of bosses. There's people who see the people who work for them just as like assets to help them in their own career. And then there's other bosses who are much more selfless, right? Like I see you, I'm your coach. I see this amazing trajectory for your career that you may not even see yourself, but I am so inspired to help you get there. And I've worked for both and it is just, it is a night and day experience. And you always know when your boss is just in it for themselves.
1: Right. Well, I'll tell you, there's one quote that I think wraps this, this part of the conversation beautifully. And there's a very dear friend and mentor of mine, John Risley. And he said he was, I was interviewing him at a conference for entrepreneurs organization. And I quote him in like when I talk in, in the next book, scaling culture uh, and his quote is: "None of us will build great companies. We'll lead incredible people who will build great companies." And I was like, "That's it. It's over. Like that's yep. the that's the headline, right?"
2: Right. No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Um, I wanted. I was curious. Um, did you interview any leaders that were new leaders? Because I find that that's also a, a, a turbulent time is, you know, the first 90 days, first 120 days. And, yep. and I, I thought, you know, for our listeners, was there any tactics as a new leader? Did, it, did someone come in and what worked, what didn't work? Because that's,
2: that's not talked about too much. Yeah. New leader in the sense of new to leadership or in a right. new role. Well, actually, good, good, good question.
1: Uh, I was thinking new to a role, left company yeah. A to go to company B, but I don't, maybe we can talk about both.
2: Yeah. So I, I think, and again, this is one of those things where you hear a lot of contradictory advice, because I've heard a lot of people say, you've got to give yourself time, like do the listening tour and and all that. And there's other people who say you got to make an impact early on. Right. So just acknowledge that there are those contradictions, but, but I it, often but just
1: quickly, you know, on that it all comes back to what does a company need in this moment in time? That's, that's right. the, that's the guiding principle, right. Versus right. like, there's a play, there's no play. It, this is a it, different company needs different things
2: right and Back and to, to me to me the thing that that is often missing um and it's it's one of the the modules that i I do when I work with companies is I, I often think about that important first day speech, right so ron, let's say you know i I ask you to go take over a new company, right your first day in the job, you're at all hands meeting either you know in person or virtual, and you know there's been a lot of talk about what you need to do there. It's a little bit of like this, where we're going and who you are, your background and all this. But I do find that there is, there's a conversation that I think more leaders need to have. And my phrase for it is what is your personal leadership brand? And to me, the way to unpack that is to be able to articulate, look, in terms of my values and what I have found successful in my own career and what I value in the people that work for me, are these three things like these are the core sort of leadership values that are important to me and it's not sort of amorphous like excellence and customer centricity it's got to be sort of actionable right and i think i don't think leaders spend enough time reflecting on like what would those three things be and then to be able to say these are the stories behind those from either when I was a kid or when I was running a team, the lessons, how I learned them, to sort of bring them to life. So, Adam, because- I just
1: want to be, make sure I'm clear on that. So, if I was joining company A, I'm really telling people, look, just so you know, here's my—I um, I don't know what the word to use—style, or here's the key things that, that that will that drive my how I am as a leader. So, it's important for you to know that. And here's where yeah. this comes from. Okay.
2: It is because I think people on that first day's speech, you know, a new leader goes into a role. To me, there's like three questions on the table, right? Like, what's your plan for winning? The second one is like, how are we going to roll together? Like the cultural behavioral norms that you're going to anticipate. And I want to understand you as a leader, because people talk a lot about authenticity and trust in leadership. And to me, those are big amorphous words. So I always ask, okay, what does that mean in practice? And I think the best leaders are predictable right? And one of the ways you become predictable is you say, these things matter to me. They matter to me in my career. They matter in the people who work for me. And I think they're really important for us for winning. You know, again, go, go to the sports coach, right? Like you've got kind of a style as a coach and to be clear about that. And again, tell the stories behind them. And at that point you start becoming predictable and you make it clear, like, this is who I am. And you reward people, you know, with shout outs or however you do when they when they exhibit those behaviors. But that's a way of like there's always these sort of cultural values. But I think people have to think more about their personal leadership values.
1: Right. Yeah, it's it, it's that's a great point. And, you know, we do this thing in our company called you know, it's, it's, we're still small businesses. We, I'm, a, I'm in real estate now, and my other business is called Beta living And so we, we're, our team at the office would be 13 and, and scaling, and then front lines would be maybe, you know, 35, 40. And we do this kind of, it's called a, today is called a Ron 101, right? And so if you were to join the team and you wrote me a five page email, when I, you, when you get the thumbs up emoji, the Ron 101 would tell you that Ron has ADHD, he glance reads, it would save right. you from writing it, and you wouldn't be upset when you receive it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, it sets the tone. It sounds like in a similar realm to that,
2: you know, in education. It is. And and to me, like, again, I I sort of use the altitude metaphor. So another tool that we use with our clients is called your leadership user manual. And to me, that's more, more tactical. That is a, is a great framework for sharing. Like, look, these are my quirks, right? Like I have these preferences, whether it's email or decks or presentation or feedback or all these things, right? We all have our quirks and people more
1: values. You were more kind of like, these are deeper things that I value in Right. right
2: Right. Because, you know, I, I went, I, once I had this insight, I sort of put myself through the exercise, like if, you know, cause I've taken over a lot of new teams and if somebody said, what should we know about you as a leader, you know, what, what, what are your leadership values? I mean, the ones that I would, I, I would come back to is, you know, the first one and in, in the CEO Ron Williams that I interviewed, he said it best. He said, you know, I expect everybody on my team to get 15% better every year. And to me, it's just really core, Um, To you, you should always be trying to get better. And because when I think about my, all the people I've managed, if you want to get better, we're going to get along great. I can flex to all your quirks, but if you don't want to get better, it's going to be a difficult relationship. I love that. I love it. and, and, And people often talk about like teamwork is so important. And again, one of those big amorphous words and I heard this great phrase from another CEO I interviewed. And she said, at our company, we are all subcontractors to each other. And to me, that's a way of like setting a very clear signal on what that looks like in practice, right? Because if you go in with a mentality, like I need stuff from you, Ron, you need stuff from me, we're working for each other. To me, that helps take care of a lot of the politics. And the and the final thing that I would say is just the four words, zoom in, zoom out. Because zooming out is important that you've gotta be thinking about the big picture and coming up with the big ideas, but you gotta zoom in because You got to get the details right. You know, all that sort of execution. I have editor brain. I see typos in menus. I can never turn it off. And I think you just set that high standard of execution and make it clear, but it's not an either or. You don't want a culture of proofreaders. You got to have the big ideas, but you got to execute at a granular level. So like that's just an example of, of what I would say in that. And I think it's good to spend some time reflecting like what are what are those things that are core for me, like what's your, you know, you're kind of a coach Ron yourself. Like what is Ron's playbook for winning? What are the values? I'm not putting but, you on the spot. Unless no, they're no, top look, of mine.
1: Well, look, I, I, I found that very interesting um, because like, I look, I'm not a, I'm not a details person at all. I just know that that's not my strength. I, I, I really like the the 10,000 feet and right on the ground. So that's probably the version of zoom in, zoom out. Although it was interesting you know i know as my new company scaling the details are getting away from me and i was at a conference uh, in cleveland a few weeks ago and they talked about you know the, the the best companies on the planet have these two forms of leadership visionary and execution leadership did you find that well, with some companies you you cuz when that when i saw that i was like yeah that i i know sure. which one i am and i need the other you know does it Thoughts on yeah, that?
2: And, and the former CEO of Panera, he at, at, at the company, he talked about discovery and delivery muscles. And that's another way of saying it's like there's it's another way of saying execution and innovation. Right. But just this idea. I mean, as a leader, you've always got to be living in different time zones of like the present, the near term, the long term, building that strategy. you got to be thinking like that's why leadership is so hard. Right. But you've got to have the plan and work the plan. But you've always got to be trying to disrupt yourself and see you around those corners, and
1: you're talking people out of it now. This doesn't sound fun anymore.
2: <laughs> and, and, and partly, it's why I, I I have so much respect and admiration for CEOs who do it well, because the job is was hard to begin with, and it is getting harder every day um, because of all these kind of macro forces in society. So, uh, again, nothing but the deepest respect for people who do it well.
1: Well, I want to wrap with this because you, you probably saw a broad range of what the CEO, what he or she was, was focused on, right? So there's key headlines. But how many, like, is strategy moving up, Like, or sorry, is culture moving up? To be like, no, that I didn't think about that five years ago, but that is a key thing today, or not so much. That's for people and culture. Yeah.
2: I think it's huge. I mean, you know, years ago, if you were CEO, you might have to worry about your, you know, noisy institutional shareholders. Like those are kind of the stakeholders you had to worry about. But now it's just. You know, I'm, I often take stock. I think we're living through a breathtaking moment of change. You know, the nature of work itself, the nature of leadership, the role of companies in society. Employees increasingly feel like they have to. They should have a voice and a vote in the company's decisions. Um, leaders have to become like politicians where they're supposed to have an opinion on everything. And and I think part of the leadership challenge, I, I call it. We are for leaders. We're, we're in the era of the what abouts. And so when okay. you're running an all hands, right. what's that say that again, the, the era of the whatabouts and, okay. and my explanation for that is that at an all hands meeting, you have to be prepared for somebody. A lot of people have put up their hands and say, what about this? what about that? What about voter suppression in Texas? What about, you know, the Amazon rainforest? What are we doing about that? And, and people expect you to have um, an opinion and a, and a, you know, and actions on each of those. And so to me, a very of the moment leadership challenge is what is your strategy for those? whatabouts? Because if you're reactive and you feel like you actually have to have an opinion, you're quickly going to alienate everybody on your staff.
1: Right. Right. So to think those through, that's a neat, that's a neat uh, process to go through. I'm sure I haven't thought about that. That's very uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, um, I'm, it really excited to read your book now. So I uh, I was literally ordered a copies before we jumped on. I was like, I'm getting this. This is excellent. Uh, this is, this has been a great conversation. Uh, Adam, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you think would be great for the listeners based on this conversation? Anything you're like, yeah, there's this one thing that I've been talking about that we didn't cover today.
2: I just, you know, I I keep coming back to this notion of how underrated and underappreciated listening is. And and I just think it's something that um, we are there is less and less of it in society as more of our communication moves online. Um, I am struck by how many conversations are really just serial monologues where people are just talking and waiting for the other person to finish uh, so they can say what they think. Um, And I just think it's it is so important for leaders to be good listeners. And it's one of those paradoxes because you can't keep listening to the point where you can't make a decision. But people need to feel like they are heard. Um, And you can make a decision that maybe goes against it, but they have to feel like they're heard. And the higher you move up in leadership positions, the more you have to know that all information is being compromised when it comes to you. There's that shorthand of careful how funny your jokes become, right? And some leaders are aware of that trap and not everyone is.
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And it's uh, it's interesting, you know, you think of this one th- simple thing of listening is what it's is is the pivotal moment is the the iceberg here that we have to go back to it sounds like, like leadership 101 but that's where we're heading back to it's very interesting yeah, exactly. and i'll say if you have a moment we had lori costell uh, who's the chief uh, diversity officer at ford i was blown away she talked about ford they do these days of listening for management i was really blown away that ford they intentionally train people, managers, leaders on how to listen, where they get together with groups of diverse folks and they're not allowed to say a word. And I was so impressed that Ford Motors company was doing that.
2: Right. Right. No, that's great.
1: Yeah. Well, Adam, look, it's been a pleasure to get to talk to you. I've loved you this conversation. And uh, so where do we get your book online? You just Amazon or? or yeah, the CEO test
2: you? on Amazon. My personal website is adambryantbooks.com, all one word. And my firm is the X-Curve Group. Um, and our, our website is exco Leadership. That's exco leadership.com. Excellent.
1: Adam, thanks so much for dropping in.
2: Great. Really appreciate the conversation, Rob.
0: For more information about Adam, please connect with him on LinkedIn or go to adambryantbooks.com. For more information about the Scaling Culture podcast or our Scaling Culture masterclass that comes out in the next five weeks, go to scalingculture.org. And if you're enjoying the Scaling Culture podcast, please subscribe and share. We'll be back next week with another incredible guest.